This is a show about individual experience and personal identity. There may be times when folks use identifying words or phrases that don't feel right to you. That's part of what we're exploring here. Please listen with an open heart, and as always, I welcome your polite, engaged feedback, and I encourage you to continue the conversation in your own life and with your own community. Welcome to Query. Hey, Queeros, Cammy here. Well, I just celebrated Pride in New York City. It was World Pride. I'm recording this before then, so... I assume it was amazing. Anyway, today on the podcast, my guest is Elena Rose Fira, the Deputy Executive Director of Trans Lifeline. Really awesome, life-saving hotline you can call this staffed by trans folks for trans folks. And their number is 877-565-8860. Or if you live in Canada, 877-330-6366. Enjoy the podcast. I've been feeling wrong, but I'm still holding on. Darling, I know, I know, I know it's careless. Awesome. Um, are you ready to go? Sure. Great. Hello, Jordan. Just a shout out to Jordan. Jordan, keep this in. Keep this in. <laughs> always doing such a great job. Hey, I always have folks introduce themselves on the show. Would you introduce yourself? Sure. Hi, I'm Elena Vetta, and I'm the executive director of Trans Lifeline. And Trans Lifeline is something I know a little bit about, but could you tell me more about it since there might be some listeners who haven't heard of the, it would, would you say, organization? Service? What would you say? I would say organization. Yeah. Um, we are the largest direct service organization for trans people in North America. Um, and our two main programs are both kind of groundbreaking. One of them is our hotline, which is the only peer support crisis hotline that is staffed entirely by trans people. So we guarantee that when a trans person reaches out for help, they get someone who understands what they're going through. And um, it's an incredible, unprecedented program that operates all across North America. And um, our microgrants program is this incredible low barrier grants program where we are able to give small amounts of money to trans people who need help with legal documentation, passports, uh, driver's licenses, name changes, if they need uh, commissary money, if they're currently in prison or if they're in immigration detention, we're able to help them pay some fees and get some services. So we basically, we take uh, applications for from trans people all across North America who just need a little hand up and we connect them with the kind of help that gets them more opportunities to succeed. We're dedicated to making trans lives worth living. Oh, wow. I mean, first of all, I just want to thank you for the work that you do for our family. I think that's, it's yeah. so awesome. Um, specifically the, you know, I first heard, I think I first heard about, no, I know I first heard about Trans Lifeline. This would have been a couple years ago. So I, th I feel like it was still a burgeoning mm -hmm. um, organization and it was at the convening of the Tegan and Sarah Foundation. Mm -hmm. And I believe it was the those were your two founders, right? That yeah. that would have been there, mm -hmm. um, Nina and and Greta, yeah. and Greta, yeah. So like I heard them speak, um, and you know was really impressed specifically by the mission to have it be a trans person on the other mm -hmm. 
end of the phone line. That just seems so, so important. Yeah, well, we believe in trans people and we believe in trans people, not just as people who need help, but who are capable of offering extraordinary gifts. Oh, that's so right. Exactly. Yes. Because often when it's, uh, in, you know, um, a community that's extremely marginalized, the narrative can sort of bend toward the salvation narrative. Right, Where right, there exactly. has to be like a person with more power who's in a savior role. Exactly. And instead, we're trusting trans leadership to help trans community. And our support is overwhelmingly grassroots. It's, um, I think, 85% of our budget just comes from regular people who are giving just a little bit um, because they care about the community. And then we get to be stewards of that. We get to take that just sort of enormous map of love from mm. around the world and translate it into, into directly helping trans people. It's all I ever wanted to do. I love our people. Can I ask you a question then yeah. about that? Because I said our family, and I mean, I really think of mm -hmm. trans folks as part of my larger LGBTQ family. Mm -hmm. Does that, how does that, does that sit right with you? Or do you feel like there's a different, more appropriate way I can speak about things? No, absolutely. I think of us as family. <laughs> um, and I think we're better together. I know, you know, we all have our various sort of granular individual identities, but ultimately yeah. the thing that helps us out is when we come together across our differences <clears throat> and, and when we're able to, to join each other as family, to recognize each other as family and come home to each other. That's, that's when we have the power to, to take care of each other. Well, excuse me if I burst into tears. Um, no, I, I also... Well, let's see. All right, so I'm going to map it further forward a little bit. Right after, so like I had gone to the convening, I had heard Nina and Greta speak so eloquently on their own behalf, but mm -hmm. then I had also seen, you know, Tegan and Sarah use their power to sort of right. like seed the stage and just be like, here's some people you should know about. So it was a really interesting way of sort of addressing exactly what you just talked about, yeah. where it's like it's all family, but there's these people can speak better on their own behalf than, right. we, you know, it wasn't like some slideshow of different like trans faces that right, then right. Tegan and Sarah were in the foreground playing a Right, with like a Sarah tune. McLaughlin yeah, exactly. tune, you know, <laughs> and like for just pennies a day. Or a Tegan and Sarah <laughs> tune, you know. Right, um, right. But one of their saddest ones. Um, but yeah, anyway, so this, so it was cool. And then right after that, um, I cannot remember, and I don't want to remember, but some, uh, there was some there was some like transphobic tweet that went out and mm -hmm. um I remembered Trans Lifeline and what I did was like sort of tried to drive some funding. Right. And, like cuz I feel like this is I I'm not on Twitter as much as I used to be, but there was that period of time when what everybody was doing was sort of like quote tweeting the mm -hmm. horror right. and then responding, but it's also like constantly re uh, traumatizing. Yeah, you know, this like, sort of horrible agglutinative weight to it. Yeah, you know? like, like I, there's this climate that's traumatic. Like cool, good, smart comment, funny joke or whatever. But I also would love to not see this thing. And it was like a Mike Huckabee statement right. that he made. And so I, I, I um, I turned it into an opportunity to do like a little bit of a fundraiser for Trans Lifeline, mm -hmm. which ended up being really successful, it was cool to see people sort of galvanize behind action that they could take that wasn't yeah. just like a car crash that they could look at. Right. And like you've really had our back. Oh, uh, well, I just. <laughs> it was amazing. Well, what, what I'm, 
what I'm also just trying to suggest is like for anybody listening, this was a, for me, like a teaching moment when you, when you see an opportunity, like I had never done anything like that before where I saw this is the car crash. Oh, actually I can just like shift focus over to the EMTs, you know? And I, I just, I just, it felt very, it felt like a good lesson for me to learn just as a person. No, I mean, I look back at like last November, that horrible, you know, Department of Health and Human Services statement came out about wanting to erase the legal status of trans people. Yes. And when that happened, our call volume instantly quadrupled. Yes. Like instantly, like in an hour. Um, And we were actually able to keep up with the call volume to like maintain our answer rate, partially because so many people, just people with a little bit to give all all through in a little to back us up and we were able to bring on more operators and and answer that call and it was amazing to see all of these people just jump in wow i actually have i mean i have i have some goosebumps here uh because i really do think so are you saying that when that when that um when the news came down you started getting an increase in donations at the same time that you were getting an increase in calls. Yeah. Like that at it just, the same time. So that I guess that's what I'm trying to I'm not trying to like self-aggrandize my actions. I'm actually more trying to say like I know it can feel so overwhelming right now. It's right. like what would be effective? And sometimes sometimes what seems like it's effective is just to like point out the horror, but we're kind of beyond that at right. this moment. So right, I, right. No, exactly. I'm, like it's bad and we know it's bad. We're <laughs> we're in wartime here. Yeah. And sometimes I feel like we're kind of running the like field clinic. You know, and we have people who are doing, you know, organizing work or scientific work or legal work who are who are calling us because we're we're trying to, like, take care of the community, including the people who are, like, on the front lines fighting and and to make sure that we're meeting those needs and to, to have a program like the like the grants program. You know, we I see a lot on like social media. People are like, what we really need to do is give money directly to people who need money. And we get to do that. We've given out three hundred thousand dollars just no barrier essentially to trans people who need it. When when we ran a prison commissary fundraiser for people in prison and immigration detention last uh, last Christmas, um, we doubled what we expected to raise. And we we have this we figured out this loophole right where um, when you donate to someone's prison commissary, which helps them call their family or their lawyer or get like a basic comfort. Um, while they're in this dehumanizing situation, um, the prison corporations take these huge fees out. So they basically profit over everyone trying to help someone they love who's locked up. Um, but they waive those fees at Christmas. Um, so every dollar you put in actually goes in. And so we oh timed God. our fundraiser so that everything that came in just went directly into someone's pocket. And um, we were like, we're going to game the system and we're just going to like put enough in that it'll last them. How did you know how to do that? How did you know to do that? Like who was doing the research? Who was helping you? How did you figure that out as an organization? We've been we've been doing that uh, a version of that fundraiser for a couple of years now. Um, We're in our fifth year as an organization. Um, And we work with folks who are on the ground. We work with, you know, groups like Black and Pink, people who are working directly with people in prisons, groups like um. I don't know if you know the transgender intersex uh, justice project that uh, Miss Major founded, um, and they help they help trans people on the inside and also help them get reestablished on the outside when they get released. No, I don't know about this. They're they're a wonderful community organization. Janetta Johnson currently runs it, and they 
Um, you know, they organize letter writing nights to make sure that people know that they're loved from the outside. They help people get jobs when they when they get out. They make sure that people don't lose hope and that they have community. And they help people get back on their feet when they're when they're released. Um, so we work with groups like that that are directly interacting who can who can tell us this. And actually, we've we've expanded that program. So now we have an inside advocate. We have someone who was recently incarcerated, a, a trans woman. Um, who is helping us make sure that when we're trying to serve people who are currently imprisoned, that it, it's actually meeting the needs they have and not the needs we think they should have or we expect them to have. I've, you know, I've personally, I've never been locked up longer than night, but uh, um, but I want to make sure that we're we're always trusting to that principle of of relying on the leadership of people who've had the experience. And um, you know, my philosophy, and I think our philosophy as an organization is wherever our people are, our family, right? That is where our concern must be. That we don't ever leave our people behind, whether they're locked up or on the street or in the suburbs. That wherever they go. We have so many people who call in for to our hotline for support because they're in some town where they can't get a trans-affirming therapist or a doctor, and they have to drive hours and hours and hours if they want medicine. And so they call us because there's no one else to call. And we provide community. We provide people who understand what they're going through. And some of our operators have been callers, you know, who just want to give back because they got something out of it. And that that's the thing that just kind of, it gets me out of bed in the morning. <laughs> yeah. I, well, at first, I want to stop real quick and just mm-hmm. say one tiny thing. And then I want to ask some, a follow, some follow-up questions. Um, one thing, I, th- you know, when we go back to that story just for a second of mm-hmm. the call volume and the donation volume increasing. I just want to mention that I think that's like a very good anecdotal piece for for me to hear or for other listeners, for listeners to hear, because, you know, one thing that that also can be true is there's a huge um, harrowing moment and people rush to donate and it can almost feel like "Eh, is this even going to do anything? You know, like it Mm -hmm. can, like, it's Mm -hmm. like I'm giving 15 bucks to like, toss money at the problem does money really and so i think it is helpful (laughs) to just take a second and say yes sometimes money applied directly can have an effect and so that's just like a good sort of marker as we think about like how how to continue to operate in the next couple years right i mean we all talk about the nonprofit industrial complex right and there's this thing where you know, you some of these organizations, the money goes to the executive staff or it goes to whatever. And some of our money goes to things like paying the fees so that we're operating legally around the country or, you know, that kind of overhead. But that week where that announcement went out, it was not just our, we broke all of our records for call volume and all of our records for donations mm-hmm. um, at the same sure. time. And we were able to expand our services. We we took that and we immediately invested in hiring more operators, bringing on contractors. We overhauled the like the tech and the code that, that makes our hotline operate um, so that it would work better. You know, we rearranged our, our scheduling and having those extra resources let us double the number of operators on the line. That's amazing. I would also argue that, you know, obviously there are ways that this is done irresponsibly, but, you know, I would argue that it's actually important mm-hmm. that folks in positions like yours are 
like fairly compensated, you know, like that. Oh yeah, that, no, that absolutely. It, you know, because I think there's also a way of looking at it where it's like, well, where's the money going? It's going to, to, and then it's like to fairly pay this person who, and then hopefully is, you know, from the community that they're serving right. and hopefully also that, 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 you know, lifting up that person then creates a, um, an opportunity for that person to like hire the right people, you know, beneath them. I just, I think it's like a funny way that we look at the nonprofit sector where for oh, some yeah. reason it should be like volunteer or and something. And that doesn't help you. No, and, I mean, this and is real work. It, it, number one, it's real yeah. work. And number two, like uh, you're, you know, you're from, you're from this community. Like right, it right. would, it would make no sense for you to sort of abdicate your, uh, ability to move through the world. Right. This is my first living wage, I think, in my entire adult life. And I've worked, you know, like in professional fields that require what did you a do master's before? degree. Um, my job before this was actually um, taking care of a congregation as a clergywoman. Oh, wow. I'm also a minister. Wow. Um, obviously, Trans Lifeline is a secular organization and, um, you know, it's not it's not a religious project. But for me, like I, I took vows to serve our community. Like I stood at an altar and I took vows. It was, I, I literally married my job. And, <laughs> like, you know, I wore a fancy outfit. My family and friends were there, you know, and I made promises um, at the, at this uh, beautiful community that's embraced me. Where did you live at this time? Uh, this is, is this, this where you still live? Yeah, this was in the Bay Area. Um, it's kind of funny. It's called the Church for the Fellowship of All Peoples. It was founded in 1942 by Howard Thurman, who was one of Martin Luther King's mentors. I know Howard Thurman, yeah. Yeah, and it was, he founded it as this experiment in doing an interfaith, racially integrated congregation in the 40s. Whoa. And it's still there, and it's this sweet little community, and they were really excited to, to uplift a trans clergywoman. Wow. Um, and so they had my back, and they, they've lent me their good name. Is that what you have a master's in? Do you have a do you have a, yeah, I went to seminary. You went to seminary. Yeah, I was a theology major in college. No, do you know this about me? I don't. I wanted to be a priest, but I was I was I was raised Catholic, so there is like a direct sort uh -huh. of end um, where where like that didn't match up. But then also the Catholic Church is um, you know uh, hates trans people. Well, um. also hate, literally, <laughs> uh, you know, is a colonialist. Yeah. Um, no, I mean, corporation. I was, so I mean, yeah, I was, yeah. There's a uh, lot was, of there's a lot of there's a I lot was, of issues I could have. I was raised Catholic and Jewish, ah, which means I perfect. get super guilt powers. Yes. Uh, <laughs> but um, yeah, yeah. That, so you went to seminary. Was that? Um, and I was in the Bay Area. There's a like what like so? Had you gone to? Was that instead of college? And then you like did? Oh no, or was I that, had a, So you went to like undergrad, and then you went. Yeah, yeah, I went to undergrad in a in a, actually a, a really intensely sort of atheist school where if you mm. if you had a religion, it was considered kind of shameful. We sure. used to joke I was the only one who went into applied religion. <gasps> uh, <laughs> sure, <laughs> but no, I had this really intense academic undergrad, and then I I realized that no matter what other job I was doing, what I would be doing was taking care of the community, and the responsible thing to do instead of halfway doing it alongside some other job was to go all in and get the training to make sure that I was equipped to take care of people properly. And so I got to study not just community organizing um, or the history of, of civil rights organizing and radical resistance movements, but also counseling, right? Like actual, like concrete 
counseling training. Um, and oh, you are the perfect person for your job. I'm I'm in love with the work. And I think it seems like you have the right job for you. <laughs> you know, and, and three years ago, you know, we had this awful year in the Bay um, and in trans community. We lost a lot of people that we cared about. Um, and uh, I don't know if you knew Bryn Kelly. She died that winter no. um, by suicide. She was a, a really beloved member of our community. And, um, you know, and then we had the Orlando, you know, the Pulse Massacre and the ghost ship fire in Oakland. And we were just losing people left and right. And I stopped looking for work. I had just come out of, of school and I just started showing up and taking care of people where I could and holding people while they cried or doing a funeral or whatever. Um and people would just sort of drop some money in my PayPal if they saw me helping someone they cared about. And that paid my rent for the year of just doing community service. And so when it came time to uh, to look for someone to take on the new leadership at Trans Lifeline, I think I think folks saw that. And that's um, that's what ended up leading them to to come to me. And I there was no way in the world I was going to turn down an opportunity to serve at this scale. You know, I, I love being a counselor. I love sitting across a table from someone and, and helping that person out directly. But to put in an hour of work that helps hundreds of people who are in need at this hour of the world, you know, there, there are all of these forces that are arrayed to try and obliterate us, to pretend that we never even existed, to deny us the chance to shape the future. And there are a whole lot of people who are willing to sit and let it happen and regretfully say someday, oh, it's just so sad that we lost them along the way. And I, I think about my teachers and friends and loved ones who, who lived through the plague years in the 80s and the 90s and how many people we lost and how much better we would be if we had them here still with us. And I refuse to lose another generation. I just absolutely refuse. And so my goal is to make sure that Trans Lifeline is a steady, reliable community resource that lasts longer than I have the capacity to run it, that that it will be here for years to come and get as many people, you know, as many of our family through these times as possible. So they get a say in what the future is so that there's never a point where some kid has to wonder what stories they can fit in or what their life might look like or whether or not their life is even possible because they have role models and they have community support and people who can be there and show them the ropes. You know, I, I think we're probably about the same age and like, you know, the internet was brand new. Um, yeah, how old are you? Do you I'm mind me asking? 37, 37. I'm 37. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, it I was think like, that does actually matter. It's it's like really important right. for to mark our experience. Right, that moment. Because like, micro-generations like, is something I talk about all the time. There are like micro-generations right. in the LGBT community where it's like it, two years younger, one year younger. I mean, I— It makes I, all the difference. I graduated from college the same week that Massachusetts became the first state to legalize same-sex marriage, and I lived in Massachusetts. So, like, as I gradu- graduated from college, I became an adult mm-hmm. in a state that would have allowed me to marry. You know, right, like, and right. that that would have mattered if I was in a different state, but also if it was one year earlier or one year later, that wouldn't have lined up exactly the same way. Right. So it just, like, really impacts the way we live the rest of our lives. No, I grew up in rural Oregon, you know. In, oh, did you? Yeah, yeah. 
Out on, out on the cowboy side of the I've state. I've driven through rural Oregon. Ah, I know the cowboy side of the state. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I come by these boots, honestly. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and, you know, like, I remember we we tried to set up a, a gay-straight alliance, which was sort of a new thing, because it's the 90s, um, at my high school, and they threatened to shut down all school activities to keep us from being allowed to have a club. Yeah, that's right. You know? I relate was, to that, yeah. It was like that, like, people who came out got run out of town. Mm-hmm. I, had a, I had a friend in high school who was the first trans person I ever met and who ended up thrown out and then on the street in Portland because Portland's where you go. It's where you run away to when you're from the rest of Oregon. Right. Um, (laughs) Right. And who didn't make it. And I think about that loss all the time in this work that, you know, that we, we can't leave any of our people behind wherever they are. And I... I was shaped by that, by recognizing that we we let her down as a community and that I I just I wasn't gonna let it happen again. Yeah, I wanna I wanna kind of that feels like an opportunity to again sort of circle back to something that um we were talking about a, a few minutes ago and that I think doesn't like totally get enough um clear statement or around. So like, mm-hmm. I'm just going to speak, I am not an expert at this, right. but I'm just going to speak about what I do know, yeah. which is that you're speaking directly about um, the work that you do with uh, prison population mm-hmm. and with the incarcerated and, you know, putting money in folks commissary. And so I just, I feel like it's important to sort of point out that um, a trans community, specifically trans women, specifically trans women of color, mm-hmm. specifically black trans women are over patrolled um and so therefore like over incarcerated mm-hmm, like per mm-hmm. as on a on a statistical basis and so therefore because i feel like when we talk about that it's like well why why would that be a natural extension of this work you know like why mm-hmm, why would mm-hmm. a service organization automatically work with a prison population and i think for anybody that maybe is listening that doesn't right. totally know a ton about like who is in prison, you know, to just talk about that, that that's a community that maybe is also there because, uh, they looked in a way that attracted the attention of the police and, you know, that they also are, that it's also a community that, I mean, our community as a whole has a higher, um, has higher instances of addiction, which would lead to again, over patrolling. And that also, May turn to sex work because of a lack of opportunity. Where right, there are also right. people who turn to sex work because it's their choice and what they sure, want sure. to do the most in the world. There are also people who it's a lack of opportunity right. finding other work because of how they present. So, right, and all of these are risk factors. Whether you're being profiled yes. for being black, whether you're being over-policed because you're poor and you're... Uh, turning to underground economies to survive like sex work, whether you're experiencing homelessness like 20% of our community does, whether you're trying desperately to get medication that is expensive and that, you know, your situation isn't supporting because we're denied health insurance, whether you're being denied employment, like all of these things increase the way that our, our people are policed. And as you said, that's it, the brunt of it hits black trans women. Um, but black trans people in general, trans women of color in general, they're sort of concentric circles. And, and so we see this massive over-policing. And because of the ways that culturally 
uh, were painted as unsympathetic or suspicious or or predatory or dangerous um the justice system is unfair it it, it yeah. right it overwhelmingly it 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 disproportionately punishes people and then we see situations like you know this this awful you know grief that the house of extravaganza is going through in new york right now where you know $500 of bail would have gotten this woman out um for some minor thing and instead she died in solitary and if you're not in in a community that's being disproportionately targeted for for poverty and and oppression in this way then you don't end up in that situation right it's not it's not a i think i think in our american sort of overculture we're taught to really judge anyone who's seen as having done something bad that they deserve harm and a you know there are plenty of people who do awful things who never see any kind of punishment b not all the people in there have done anything wrong. And see, it doesn't matter. There are people. And I think I think so often of Sylvia Rivera's speech that, you know, thanks to Tourmaline's archival work we now we now have available on the internet, um at that at that Christopher Street rally where she was she was screaming and begging for the community to remember our people and especially our sisters who are locked up because anything we're facing on the outside as a community is worse in a situation where you're locked up, denied freedom, and the people who have power over you can do kind of anything they want. That any ways that we're being punished as a community out here, um, it's just concentrated for the people who are who are denied their humanity sure. in there. And and yeah. you know, as as Sylvia was saying, right? Like if we if we are pretending to be a community, if we're pretending to be a liberation movement, and we leave behind the people that we find distasteful or or expendable, then we're not really a community. So, you know, when we look at our dedication to serve our trans family across across this continent and hopefully, you know, heaven willing, further than that, um, I'm I'm not willing to do a version of it that leaves behind the people who are already denied voices and resources because they're locked up. They they are our people. We need to be able to take calls from them on the crisis line. We need to be able to to get them money the same as anyone who is in a easier better situation than, than they're in. Yeah. You know, we're currently we're working on building our Spanish language um capacity and we're actually, you know, if anyone out there is listening um, who is a trans person with good Spanish? We're we're looking to find more operators, volunteer, and staff because we have so many people calling from immigration detention right now, who who need help and they need someone to be there for them. And because we only take trans and non-binary operators, uh, we have a smaller pool of volunteers than any of these other organizations. Um, and so we we have to work a little harder to find the right people, and we need that because that's where our people are. You know, our people are are everywhere, as mm-hmm. we know. Yeah, I mean, I, I I think it's, I think to I think you you said it so well. I mean, number one, yes, <laughs> if if this person, uh, for lack of a better word, like deserves what what is happening, whatever that means, right? Uh, that doesn't mean that that that's uh, not a human being but then right, also right. on you know on top of that when we i just think we 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 still even within the community so often um don't make the connection between uh the actions people are taking and the situation that those 
folks find themselves in. Right. You know, we, we act as if like, I mean, that's how we act about, that's how this, that's what we're sold as right, it's a an, country. Over, it's like you're completely in charge of your destiny and it's, right. you know, land it's of an, opportunity. It's an unjust system. And, you know, we are, we are taught to abandon Anyone who makes us uncomfortable. Yeah. You know, yeah, sure. who, who uses the wrong words, who dresses the wrong way, who doesn't smell right. Like we're taught, we're taught to to dehumanize. And that's done to trans people generally. And it's done more the more intersections of oppression you're facing. Sure. And um, you know, we're we're taught to think in terms of deserve and to think uh, of this notion that if you're suffering, it's because you're bad. And if you're yeah. powerful and rich, it's because you're good. And we know full well that's not actually true. I when know, we look God. At it, right? it's, all, it's literally every single day of uh, our life as a—all of our lives as a country right now is watching somebody flail around in the highest office who, like— Right. It, who just, you know. <laughs> who, <laughs> who tripped and fell uh, into— Money while also fit pulling the puppet str- like pulling right. strings and and I mean it's just right, someone who isn't good at anything. No, yeah, good, not good at anything except no for virtues. somehow wandering <laughs> right. through this maze of like evil. Like the only right. thing that person can do is just always choose the e- most evil option on the multiple choice quiz. Right, like right. there's not any other skill there except for like D devil, you know, like whatever it is. Right, uh, right. Yeah. and we have a, we have a, a society and especially an economic system that rewards that kind of behavior. And so I think it's really important to counterbalance it and say, yeah. right, our our concern is is really never about deserves. Like if if anything has really taught me to do this job now as like a nonprofit executive, it was being a radical street medic. Um, you know, I was I was part of that second generation of of street medics that came up after the WTO riots. Um, where where people were organizing to offer medicine during demonstrations. Wait, where are you talking about? In were you in the Bay Area at this time? I was in uh, up in Oregon. You were um, in Oregon. I was in Portland. Um, you were in Portland. And after the uh, the beginning of the Iraq War, you know, we had massive civil unrest. We were shutting down the city with protests, and so we trained a bunch of of street medics. Uh, and you had this training? And How I did was, you get this training? So we were we were organizing together, and there were a group of people called the Black Cross Health Collective, um, who I think are no longer operating, but they have a bunch of descendant organizations. And it was people with EMT and nurse and wilderness first responder training who um, who basically wanted to make sure that like ambulances are not allowed in to to like a riot or a demonstration situation. Um, it's like they're they're legally restricted in some ways. And so they took this training that you get like as a wilderness first responder where your problem is help is a long way away. How do I get this person out of here? Or like, how do I stabilize them with no backup kind right, of thing? Right. And then they they sort of flipped it to, well, what if you're surrounded by people and that's why no one can get to you? Wow. And so we, you know, they did experiments in how to make countermeasures for tear gas and pepper spray and um, and so they basically, they did these rigorous trainings. They put us through scenarios. You know, we had like screaming injured actors. And um, and you then know. you were going out. You were doing this. You were going yeah. out and like, and you were treating people? Yeah, with like first aid gear and, you know, homemade body armor, like running out there. And okay. Like, All right. I mean, I guess you're interesting. <laughs> Jesus. Anyway. Um, but it's the thing that really taught me because the thing it taught me was triage. You know, mm. like I was... In a lot of ways, even though I grew up in, you know, like conservative Eastern Oregon as a queer trans Asian Jew, 
Um, <laughs> you know, like things- I would. I would like to know about. <laughs> Where did you physically live? Did you live on like a farm? Like where did you live? No, we uh, we lived on the edge of town, so we were not on a farm. Um, for a lot of my teenage years, we lived in a log house in the woods. Um, not yeah. a farm at all, just a woods house. Okay. And I, yeah, I mean, it was like a fancy, fancy log house. Okay. It was it was nice, but I'd like ride my bike into town, and you could say things like into town. And how did folks make a living? How did your family make a li- like? Where was the we we were we were comfortable. My dad uh, was a doctor, so we were we what were okay. What kind of doctor, if you don't mind my asking? Uh, he's an immune system nerd, actually. Huh. Um, That's interesting. Yeah, yeah. And um, and my mother was a curandera, um, so a folk healer. I have I have I have never heard that word before. I do not know what that is. Yeah, um, my mother's family's from the Philippines, and um, you get that thing out there that you get in a lot of places out at the edge of empire, where Catholicism gets all mixed up with indigenous traditions. Um, yes, I've yes, I'm familiar with what you're speaking of. Yeah, yes. yeah, yeah, that thing. Um, so the family business is 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 sort of witchcraft. Um, and so I grew up with this like scientist parent and this mystic parent. What the uh, fuck? <laughs> so wait, so they would both treat they would both treat people like that? Like your like your dad had a practice or, yeah. or worked at a hospital or whatever, and then your mom. Where did she work? Uh, she kind of was on call and like also did all kinds of odd homes. jobs. She's this really sort of hardcore lady who like taught herself how to do like landscaping and business management and like house renovation and uh, normal, you know, right? Normal. We don't really pick careers. Normal, in, in like, balanced. <laughs> Back for another game. You know it. What's going on? Just one more week till Max Fun Drive. Hard to believe. It's been a heck of a year since the last one. We're now a worker-owned co-op. We raised $50,000 for charity last year. And we've added a bunch of awesome new shows. But do you think we're ready to do it again? Absolutely. Lovely new gifts are lined up. The episodes will be amazing. And wait till everyone hears the bonus content. Yeah, plus they know to go to MaximumFun.org newsletter, so they're getting all the news. Oh, like that meetup day is on Thursday, March 21st. Then what's bothering you? Me? Oh, nothing. We're all set for Max Fun Drive to start on Monday, March 18th. I just didn't want you to see this coming. Check. What? Hang on! So, so, your so, parents, <laughs> did they respect each other's In a lot skills of ways, and talents? On their best days, they did. Um, you know, they came from really different backgrounds. My dad comes from this really comfortable, like, L.A. Jewish background. And my mom was from this Filipino immigrant Navy brat family. You know, her dad was in the resistance during the Jap- Japanese occupation in World War II in the mm. Philippines. And, you know, they had to, like, flee the country after the war. And, you know, he was on, like, submarines. It was like, you know, it's it's all pretty wild and implausible. I... Um, and, and, and then, so then, then they, they ended up in... Ended up in rural Oregon in a cabin together well, with a, you. It was, a, it was a nice house. But I mean, know. like, yeah, no, I mean, I know the kind of, yeah. like, beautiful cabin you're talking about, yeah. but still. Um, yeah, and then so there there I was, you know, coming up in that situation. Do you have siblings? Yeah, yeah, we're, we're not in touch anymore. Um, but um, it was, um, it was an interesting, it's a really beautiful place to grow up and also a place that, you know, really had issues around white supremacy and homophobia and um 
And uh, it was often really lonely. And, Even, you know, after after 9-11, people were vandalizing my parents' house just in case we were Muslim. Oh, man. Uh, even, <laughs> even now, like, um, and this isn't even the part of the state that you're talking about, but when was this? A couple months ago, or maybe it was in the fall. I, like, a lot of times if I play Portland and Seattle, mm-hmm. I'll rent a car and drive between, because it's, like, as long right. as flying. Um but I hadn't done that drive since we had our current president. Yeah, and it's all. It's really, it's wild. It's MAGA banners Pe- the whole way. Well, people um, build their own billboards. Yeah. Like the, the people that live, it's like on the edge of their property that is near the highway. And it's right. a huge highway. Like it starts yeah. here in LA, you know, like yeah. goes the whole, or I mean, I think it yeah, probably I-5 starts, goes. yeah, starts further south. Yeah. Um, but anyway, you're driving this huge, fi- you're driving this huge highway, the five, and there's the people that live on the board on the, right on the edge of like hand painted. Yeah. I just, I only point that out because of the effort, yeah. you know, you know, right, you're, they're you know, yes, you know, you're like in a specific place when somebody didn't even like. Or they it's, didn't even buy a sign. They, they didn't, didn't order buy a it on sign, the and it's not the Republican Party like dropping one off. Right. You know, it's not like right, they're like, I wanted to glare. They to went to the store, or like they went in the barn and they like got out their paint and they like made their own billboard. Well, and and rural Oregon and Washington, you know, the Pacific Northwest are like that. There's still sundown towns. There's still, you know, if you're driving north um, of Portland on I-5 and you look to your left, you will see a Confederate There's memorial. There's a huge Confederate flag. Right. And it's run by, you know, this like white supremacist, you know. Group. Multiple, multiple Confederate flags. And it's, I, it is a funny. Right. Like that's. Like you weren't even, this wasn't even you. Like, I just mean, that's, it's always great yeah. to see a Confederate flag extremely far north because you just go, like, oh, this is just racism. Right. You're not, you're not like celebrating I mean, it's some. A, it's always just racism, but at right. least in the South, right. like, there's, there's like a fake thing that you can right, say you that have that is. excuse where you're like, well, my great grandfather was, the, and it's to honor the, him. Yeah. And it's like, no, you This is a, a lie that you're telling yourself, yeah. but you do have a lie to tell yourself. This is just that you're a slavery fan. <laughs> yes, that's just, exactly. that's all you're saying here. Exactly. Um, you know, and um, I don't know if you know Walida Imarisha's work. Um, no. She's a friend of mine. She does um, really amazing research on the history of white supremacy in the Pacific Northwest, and particularly in Oregon. And she actually did a speaking tour of rural Oregon, talking about Oregon's history of white supremacy and redlining and sundown towns. And she had to bring bodyguards. Like, And it was one of the bravest things I, I ever saw. <laughs> she's so hardcore. Um, but anyway, like the point is right. Like I'm, I'm raised out there in this environment that was not particularly welcoming, but I was still pretty sheltered. Like when I first got to college, it was a running gag. How many things I started with by saying, I hear that in the city, (laughs) like I was still like this, like country girl and, um, and street medicing taught me that the world wasn't simple. Right. That that it couldn't just be about like good guys and bad guys, that it wasn't about, you know, like, you know, it it showed me the naked face of police brutality. It showed me um, people struggling who were, you know, breaking laws and in the moral right, which was a thing that, you know, I Mm. um, that you're not taught in school in a lot of places. And 
it taught me that it can't ever be about deserving. That like, if you are in a situation where there is an injured person in front of you and you have a medical bag and the training to help, you don't stop and say, are you a good person? Are you a person who deserves my help? Do you agree with my politics? Are you like, you treat them and you ask questions later because there's another patient just past them. And yeah, that training of like, Breaking down people not by who is good or who is bad, who deserves what, but by do you need help? Is it help I can offer with what I have from where I am? And that those were the categories of people. And everything else goes away when, you know, there's tear gas in the air and things flying around and helicopters. And to have had that experience has really helped me as a community organizer to look and uh, at people and say, right, I'm not, I'm not interested in this question. Yeah, of, well, it's like deserving. I'm interested in what do you need? It's an important uh, thing to bring up right now, obviously, because the idea of a religious exception for right. EMTs and physicians is like, it is a violation of is being batted around. And, um, you know, even without that actually written in, Right. You know, I I don't know if you I don't know if you've actually been on the other side if you've been in a medical in medical crisis. I have. But, I don't know if you you saw. I walked in with a cane. Um, I was run over by a van a few years back. Holy and, shit! And <laughs> I've been hit by a car, but it was not a van. It was a less, but yeah. I left a very respectable dent in her hood. Fuck. You know, I'm a, I'm not a small lady. Um, but, you know, I get run down in a crosswalk and I get taken to the hospital in an ambulance. And then they didn't want to treat me. They didn't want to touch me. Mm. Um, Where was this? This was uh, up in uh, Richmond, California, um, up in the Bay Area. And um, they... They tried to discharge me without letting me see a doctor. You know, I'm sitting there bleeding. I've literally been brought in wow. on an ambulance. And they looked at me as a young brown trans woman, and they assumed that I was trying to get drugs, I think. Sure. And, and so they were like, they weren't, they wouldn't examine me. They wouldn't touch me. They wouldn't do any did you scans. Come in, did you come in, in an ambulance? Is yeah, on a said? stretcher. Yeah. Wow, that's so wild. I mean, that has been my biggest fear, and it hasn't, I'm knocking on this wooden table, it hasn't happened yet but I have I've had you know I mean I think anybody in our community and especially somebody that like then looks a little like right. gender variant like because mm-hmm. I, I look like that I yeah. have had the experience of just like I'm waiting for like when I was hit by a car I was you know completely fucked up and and yeah. like the police had to come it was a whole thing you know and I'm just like well, yeah, I don't recommend being hit by a car like for everyone who's, at home. Who's going to be, who's going to, how's this going to go down? And it, you know, I just lucked into the right, right person. Right, you just never know. And then similar thing, I had like a medical crisis when I was in Oklahoma, mm-hmm, of all places. Mm-hmm. And I didn't know anybody. And I had to, I like really, I fucked up the tendons of my knee. I had to. I had to call an ambulance like to come get me out of my hotel room. Yeah. And I was just like, well, I mean. Oklahoma, like right, whatever. cross your fingers. It could go and any which way. They ended up being amazing and yeah. like kind of kept in touch with me, even like super kind people. Yeah. Um, but in that case, one of them recognized my voice huh. from a animated show that I do, and then recognized me from a, a movie that I was in. So you know, I'm like in this very specific. Anyway, I just it's yeah. like always going to be like, okay, do I did I randomly get this one police officer who used to be a bike cop and understands right. that I got hit by 
while I was in the bike lane and that that meet, you know, like, did I randomly right, it's like you just get have to rely on this luck. person who knows my voice and my voice and my face? It, like, that's so, that's, the odds of that are, it's well, just I ridiculous. Well, so often with, um, with queer folks and trans folks that, like, this anxiety that we have to build up enough social capital that someone would help us if something bad happened. Oh, my God, that, like, right? There's this competitive thing <laughs> where, like, you need, you need to be liked enough and known enough that if you need to go fund me, you know, I know. because you got sick or oh, injured man, or something, that people would, would wow, show real. up. And, like, you see this, like, social capital really translates into whether or not we have the material resources to survive. 100%. It's terrifying, right? 100%. It's terrifying. And it's it's one of the reasons that I'm so excited about things like the, our microgrants program is that it, does, it doesn't matter whether or not you're popular or well-loved or part of one of the demographics that has it slightly better or, you know, or whether or not you could throw a dance party that enough people would come to to pay for a surgery. Like, like we will, we will just make sure that you're one of ours and take care of you. That's really, you know, that's that's also interesting because I think the the other thing with like a GoFundMe is that it's like it could be anybody putting that together and right. then there's a random photo attached and it seems like the people who would need that like that just that that can't be what we use right. to provide be. care like are because, you photogenic? Are you famous? Well, and also like do you have a like an iPhone, you know, like right. it's like, like I, I, I feel like I saw one recently where there was, it was like a grainy photo. There was one photo. It was like, this person's on the street. They're in extreme need. And like, if that person was on the street and in extreme need, that's probably the photo they would have. Right. right. Like that right. makes sense. But also like, I don't know that I feel like I can just, I just, it feels so strange right. to just, I'm giving like a hundred bucks to somebody that. Like right. Google imaged random right. g- grainy photo, you know. Like and we see all of these, you know, like stories about scammers. You know, that's what who I'm are saying. Like, it's really so. There needs to be a there needs to be a system like what you're talking about. Right. I mean, uh, in like some uh, future utopia, it's uh, actually bigger than just right. It's you an actual like your... social safety net where <laughs> yes. where we do things like I don't know yes. contribute. Uh, regular amounts of, of yes. our resources to be distributed equitably to people in need. It's weird. Oh, no, um, I know. They, and also we fix roads and stuff. What is that called? What's the word for that? Taxes. Anyway. Right, um, right. The, the admission fees for civilization. Yes, yes. Taxes. <laughs> um, like, no, it's, um, but in the meantime, we, we, we find these sort of stop gaps and, and, yeah. and uh, partial measures and, you know, one of my dreams, right, in expanding Trans Lifeline, right, um, we've been really building toward, we, we get, I think, 20% more callers every year. Like, it's just always growing, even outside of those. What do you think the number is? Can you give me, like, a ballpark of how many we took, callers? I, we took about 21,000 calls last year um, out of the more than 60,000 that we've taken uh, in the history of the organization. Cool. Thank you for the. Um, and it grows every year. And we've been able to keep up. Like we've been able to to keep up and keep our answer rates steady and even increase them, but um, I want to make sure that we don't have to keep up. That we are ahead of it. That mm. no matter how many people are calling, we can guarantee that we will always pick up the phone. And so we're that's that's our big sort of ambition this year is to make sure that we are we are catching everyone who reaches out for us. That every hand that reaches out, we will hold on to it and. Um, no, and I'm, that means, you know, it means more operators and so on. Um, but and for our grants program, the dream is 
all right, once we pay for everyone's name change, you know, once we get every trans person a passport, what else do they need? Do they need medical bills? Do they need, like, sure. Like they, they, how far can you go? How far can we take it? I'm going to, I'm sure I'm going to intro this episode with your phone number, but this might be a good opportunity to repeat it. Would you, do, will you share the TransLicent line phone number? Um, so our phone number in the United States is 877-565-8860. 877-565-8860. And in Canada, it's 877-330-6366. Awesome. Thank you. I want to just before, we got like about 10 minutes left. And sure, sure. I would like to talk a little bit about like you personally. Yeah, that's absolutely. Right. Because absolutely. I, I feel like you've brought up a lot of work, a lot of training, a lot of uh, giving out to other people think that's rad it also <laughs> is not you know a requirement for value as a human being like right, we, right. we have i think also in our community this overdeveloped sense of responsibility that right. is good and creates like some really amazing people but then it's like well how are you taking care of yourself so i guess that's my first question yeah. what do you do to take care of yourself so you can continue to do this work without burning out yeah it's right like burnout is super real um like i think about I'm like already, I'm like, I'm thinking about the measures we're doing to prevent burnout in, in the organization, <laughs> right? Like that we make sure that people get a living wage in healthcare if they work there and, sure. you know, all of that. Um, and what about you? And about, right. I'm like, what about me? Um, you know, I have a great therapist. <laughs> like I have a really wonderful supportive partner. Um, and, you know, and I've built a chosen family, you know, I have, um, you know, I have uh, people who will um, who will call me up and say, we're in your neighborhood and we want to take you out to lunch. And I know that they're not coincidentally in my neighborhood. Like, they just know that they have to work a little extra to remind me to accept help. And I'm, you know, I think a, a lot of us, especially in sort of the field of caring for others, we're, we're very good at neglecting ourselves um, and forgetting to take breaks and forgetting to rest um, and pretending that that's in any way sustainable. And I think a lot of us, we, we succumb to the temptation to burn our own bones for fuel. Yeah. And I mean, it's, it's really important that like you go to the doctor, right? You know, right, and exactly. that I, just cause, cause it's like, you know, to do the work where you're like, I want to make sure everybody can go to the doctor, but it's like, but except me, except I shall not me. go to the doctor. No, I, uh, I'm yeah. like, you know, I've got like dental insurance for the first time in, in like yeah. ever. And so I'm like, I guess I'm going to the dentist now. You should go to the dentist. It's, That's um, really an important uh, emotional thing that I think probably you will feel, you yeah. know, to take the time out for right. that. It's like, because it's not just taking care of your teeth. It's like. I took care of my teeth. Wait, I sat in the weird chair and I looked at the pictures of fuzzy ducklings on the ceiling and I failed to answer questions that they asked me while stuff was in my mouth. I really support you going to the dentist. I'm on your side. You know, um, I really love cooking is the thing that really sustains Mm. me. Like I'm always experimenting. Yeah, that's like a very meditative act for me, which I really love because it's like stuff, your hands are busy. You know, when you're somebody that's like cerebral, uh-huh. it's just really good to have busy hands like sometimes. Like it's really easy to be elsewhere and else when all the time. And when you're mm. cooking, like you have to be in the moment and in your body. Or you're going to chop your all your fingers off. Right. Every single one. So right. yeah, and you got to stay. <laughs> like balance the spices and I mean, sure, and you're an that. EMT. You could treat yourself. But do you, should you have to? Anyway. You um, shouldn't have to. <laughs> right. You know. I want to ask you about your partner. Yeah, um, yeah. What is... 
vaguely or specifically as much as you want to, what is that person's career like? I'm just curious because yours is so um, like other Mm -hmm. oriented and like care oriented. I'm curious as to who you've partnered with. Yeah, no, um, she runs a witchy shop in Portland. Like a witchy? Like, do you mean like witchy? Like, yeah, yeah, like, like Wiccan, like witch? Like crystals and, and that statues. That sounds of, very right. Yeah, yeah that's no, like, and like books about magic and stuff. Like cool. it's, um, and it's, it's. Is this a place that she owns or runs? Uh, some of each. Okay, yeah. all right. Yeah, um, and it's, uh, it's really, nice you know like I've I've been with other people who are also community organizers and activists and like she's someone who really cares about all of these issues and gives what she can and shows up but the fact that it's not her day job means that like I get to come home you know yeah (laughs) I mean also I would I would you know I mean quite literally you're working with somebody who deals in solving a problem with a physical object right as opposed to with a long-term esoteric plan. Right. So that seems like a nice balance. Right. In the same way that like, I like doing the dishes because like you can actually see that your work did a thing. Sure. Whereas like long-term emotional care of people, you're like, I really hope that that person I talked to is okay. Right. I will never know. Right. Um, and so to have her doing this really grounded sort of normal work um, means that we get to talk about normal human scale things and, you know, like dream about getting a cat. And it's, um, it like, it gives me a chance to be human. It's really easy to let me, to let myself just be the work and to, to sort of fall to that thing where I'm like, I am my calling and that is the part of me that matters. And then there's finally this person in my life who's like, also, what are we having for dinner? Right. Like also I value you for just being, a person and it lets parts of me relax that don't relax anywhere else. Do you feel like also she gets to have the, cause you said this is somebody who cares about these. Yeah. No, she's topics. Then like she gets the sort of, it's like if we're all playing, if there's like a tally sheet with the universe that, that we wish we weren't playing with, but that we right. still are. It's like, she gets to feel like, okay, there is somebody in my life who's doing some of these bigger things. Like, cause, cause I think a lot of times we talk about the people that ground us right. as if like that's um, sort of the only direction that benefits, like that you're benefiting from being uh, attached to somebody who's keeping you grounded. But it's right. also really a gift to her where it's like, okay, I go do my work during the day, but then I get to know that I Right, like she's ha- keeping, am impacting the world in this huge way because of this partnership. Like she keeps me running and – that means that, like, any any good that I do, some part of it is hers. Yeah, that's kind of right? what I'm saying. Like, yeah. she gets to benefit from the from the feeling like, okay, I am doing what I'm, you know, what I can to right. resolve these issues. And, and mm-hmm. it doesn't have to be me directly. And I've been with, like, the performatively woke people who know all the right things to say and have read all the right books and, like, who aren't ultimately actually safe or right, you mm-hmm. know. And to be with someone who has this phenomenal heart that leads her to the right conclusion hmm. over and over and over again. Um, it reminds me what really matters. And this is like a perfect for 56 minutes and, and 39, 40 seconds. Right. But, but um, how long have you all been together? 
uh, coming up on three years now. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah, no, it's um, we we had a a long sort of disaster lesbian courtship. You know, um, I I'm grateful to Tumblr for I think coming up with that term, right? Where like both of us were awkwardly flirting and thinking the other one wasn't interested, and our friends were like, "Why don't you just ask her out?" And we were both like, "I don't want to assume that you know that she feels that way." Like. <laughs> just it it became comical our friends would be like oh hey are you gonna go see her right now and we were like i don't know what you're talking about and they're like you're more dressed up than usual and we're like shut up she's not my girlfriend um and we we had both sort of decided we were we were kind of done with romance for a while and um and then we kind of stumbled on each other and then and then we decided it was worth fighting for and now it's this Amazing thing. So, you know, that's, this is my plug for love. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> like I'm, you know, I'm a much better, happier, more functional person by letting that softness into my life. And mm. um, especially in times like these, it's it's just not optional, mm. you know. So whether or not romance is the thing that gives you that, like we all need something you know. Oh, thank you for adding that at the end. I start to feel like, well, shit, what about the people that don't? But then you're right. Right, like whether it's music or going to the beach or like an art that you or love. Or a whole team of people. Or a whole team of people, right? Like, and the thing that made it possible for me, I think, to be ready for a relationship like this was was being able to say, you know, I have this fulfilling community. I have loving chosen family. I have friends. I have work that matters to me. Like, I am complete without that, right? I am a whole person. And then someone comes along, and it's like, it's not that I need you. It's that I want you. It's that this is good for me and good for you, and it makes us happier. It's not about, you know, we're partial people who need to be completed by each other. And I cannot wait to clip that little part out, <laughs> add music to it, specifically some sort of Bruce Springsteen song, and have it as the new most romantic thing anyone's ever said. I am 100% down with the Bruce Springsteen soundtrack. Um, I, um, I, didn't, I didn't appreciate Springsteen until I was a dump truck driver, but that, <laughs> that did it. Well, I have no time to ask you about that. I've I'm glad that you are consistently <laughs> the most interesting woman in the world. Um, I'm a quarter fictional on my mother's side. I, uh, I'm going to send you back into your day. And before I do, I just want to ask you to shout out a queero, which is a person, place, or thing that made you feel like you can be who you are today. I'm going to say Miss Major. I don't know if you know Major. Nope. Um, she's she's incredible. Um she she was in the Stonewall Uprising. She was at, you know, Attica Prison. Um, and she has just these decades of building home for for our family, for for going where we are and taking care of them. And she just she she doesn't compromise. She doesn't watch her tone. She doesn't um she doesn't package herself to be palatable to the powerful. She just she's just relentlessly real in a way that is deeply loving and having been able to know her some it it has reminded me that we don't need to be tidy in our work and that we don't need to be marketable what we need is to is to act our love out for each other and she's she's just she's built all of these communities and a few years back right she's built this incredible community in the Bay Area. She has all these adopted daughters and granddaughters 
And um, and she announced she was moving to Arkansas. And everyone was like, Mama, what are you doing? Like, <laughs> you know, you're you're like pushing 80. You know, you've like fought cancer. You've given more than anyone could be expected to give for decades. You can retire. And she was like, no, we're we're good here in the Bay. And I trust that you've got it now. And our people need me in Arkansas. So she picked up and she moved to Little Rock and now she's like Amazing. organizing there. And it was just like, she looked at where the need was and she decided that she would keep giving what she could in this sustainable, loving way. And um, uh, having her tell me that she was proud of me was like on the bad days, I hold on to it, you know, like, because she doesn't, she doesn't fool around and she doesn't make it up and she doesn't say it if, she, if it isn't true. Um, so, you know, if you're out there listening, Major, thank you. Um, I think, I think we're all better for having people like that reminding us to be real. Oh, sure. I can't wait to move to Arkansas with, I'm assuming you, since we now know. I guess we're now doing that. That we've solved, we've solved it here. So to my partner, sorry, baby, I guess we're moving to Arkansas. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Thanks so much for your time today. Thank you. Thank you so uh, much for for having me. And thank you for supporting our work. Oh, it's... It is my pleasure. Yeah, it is my pleasure. Yeah. Cheers. Yeah, cheers. Cheers.